Welcome to the Bridge Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from our equipping pastor, Dennis Kozlov. To access other resources or to find out more information about our church, visit thebridgespringfield.com or find us on social media at The Bridge Springfield. Good morning, church. I don't even know how this tradition, tradition started, but it did. And now we're traditional. All right. Uh, we're starting a new series, and we entitled it The Heart of the New Covenant. And the word heart is kind of a key word here. And honestly, I don't know whether it's going to be a great message or holy rambling, as I call it. It can be both a little bit, so you'll have to be forgiving to me. Because I, I, I've been struggling to to crystallize and to focus on what exactly should I tell you because it's an introduction to a series and we called it, as I said, the heart of the new covenant. So what is it going to be about? How many of you have been here during the series that we called the gospel of God? Well, quite a number of people, but not as many as I thought there would be. So I guess there are a lot of new people and some of the people that are supposed to be here are watching online. Okay, I absolve your sins once again, online people. <laughs> right, so that was a different series. It wasn't a topical. We would take a book of the New Testament and we would go through the book thematically trying to figure out what is the main theme of the book. And the main theme of the book of Romans was the gospel of God, as Paul understood the gospel. So this is a similar series. We're going to take a couple of books that Paul wrote and go through them in sequential order. We're not going to dig into every single verse and unpack every single word like, like some churches do. But we will try to get a general vision of, of, of this book, actually a cluster of book. What we call the heart of the new covenant, I actually, I once heard it by, uh, referred to as a heart of the new covenant by a theologian, and he referred to four specific books. But I would say, being one of the top theologians of Northridge, <clears throat> I would say I would add a fifth book. So for me, the heart of the New Testament is the book of Romans, the gospel of God. And this is the biggest book of the New Testament. So it really takes a lot of effort to get into that. Those of you who haven't heard the series of messages we did called the gospel of God, I highly recommend you go to our website and listen to that. So the book of Romans, the, second, uh, the next one is the book of Ephesians, then the book of Philippians, right? The, what's the sequential order? Oh, Gal I'm sorry. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Yeah, well, top theologians of Northridge are not that top anymore. <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, we're not able to go through all of them with you. It'll take probably several years. So what we've decided to do for this next series, we've taken two books, basically Ephesians and Colossians. And we're going to go through the book of Ephesians with you, and we're going to go through the book of Colossians with you, and that would be part of the heart of the New Testament. So maybe next year we'll do part two or something like that. I don't know, or we'll see how it goes. Well, anyway, does it make sense? Good. Some of you are thinking, guys, I'm beginning to be irritated with you a little bit. 
you always seem to be so infatuated with, with Paul and New Testament. You never go into the Old Testament. And stuff. Well, first of all, let me tell you something. You got your Bible. Read whatever you want to. You're in America. Good. Don't impose your reading schedule on me, all right? But uh, all jokes aside, we do that on purpose. Because we all, just like in last series, we've been talking about detoxification or detoxication, detox. We all have been poisoned by religious particles. And unless we go through a thorough process of detoxic detoxification, we're going to have a hard time not creating more layers of religion in our life. So if you do not know how to read the Bible aright, you're going to keep creating new layers of religion in your life new yokes new burdens new bondages and that's not the will of the father for you or for me that's not the will of the father for for us the will of the father is freedom in christ jesus to enjoy god as a loving father and there is no price tag attached to that the gospel is a free gift. I'm, I'll preach myself happy today. I don't know about you. It's a good news. It's a happy news. It's a good news. The gospel is a good news. I'll show you some pictures at the end of this message. So we're going to preach from the book of Paul. And suffice it to say for now that Paul was chosen. So my goal, my, my, my purpose today is to show you the unique role that Paul had in the new covenant economy, in the plan of God. Very unique, very specific, very exclusive. Paul was chosen and called by God and given this very unique specific task to bring all the nations of the world, all the nations of the world into the most intimate union with God into the personal experiential knowledge of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ how ambitious is that but listen just look around right now just look around look look around I'm serious look around that's Paul's fruit you are one of the nations America is a nation that is not a Jewish nation of the Old Covenant. You are one of the nation that he's been able to do it with through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, am, I was born and raised in Russia. I come from the other side of the globe. I was one of the Money here, he's from India, northern India. Paul did a good job preaching the gospel anyway. So he claimed that, so he called what he preached my gospel. I mean, Paul, if you really study Paul and take him seriously, he can be used as a detector to see if you have any religious spirits in you. Because if you take his word seriously, you would be irritated by how audacious he is, how presumptuous he is. Who do you think you are, Paul? What do you think? My gospel. How dare you, Paul, to stand against Peter? Did you walk with Peter? 
Did you hear Jesus himself teaching? And Paul said, yes, I did. Seriously. My goodness. I don't know. I'm really impressed with Paul. So just to give you some numbers. And you know what? Today, if you uh, talk to rabbis in Israel, rabbis, they hate Christianity so much because they believe all the horrible, atrocious things that have been done to Jewish people have been done in the name of Christianity, which is partially true. And we should repent for that because we allowed that. But listen, if you ask a, a, an average rabbi, who do you hate? You know how, how deep their hatred goes? In schools, in public schools, they, when they do math, they, when they uh, subtract and what's the English for? Addition. When they do addition, they don't use the plus sign because it reminds them of the cross. Yeah, they write it like this, like a little undone T, unfinished T. That's how deeply the hatred goes into the culture of Jewish people because they felt that all the evil came to their nation from, from this religion. But listen, if you ask them, I'm getting distracted, but if you ask them, who do you think is the biggest enemy of the Jewish nation? They would say, not Jesus. They would say, Paul. They would say, Paul. They say, actually, Jesus was just delusional, but he was honest, sincere Jewish person who observed the law, who tried his best. He actually was one of the prophets, kind of. At least he thought he was. Well, he was delusional. He was, but Paul was an evil genius who totally shifted the, the course of history for the world and for the nations. And he did, actually. He did it through the power of the gospel. And what he called my gospel was a revelation of the heart of God. And for the rest of his life, he was trying to find words to express it. And he knew that he has seen something that he hasn't seen before. And he knew it's almost impossible to express it in, and articulate it in verbal form. And he knew that somehow the Holy Spirit, when he begins to speak these words, they begin to flow. The Spirit of God begins to flow. It begins to touch people's hearts. And he knew the Holy Spirit comes. And some of the people, not all of the people, but some of the people, their hearts begin to see something. He actually was the first one in antiquity. He used this image. And he constantly uh, tried to find new words. He butchered uh, Greek grammar, he tried to come up with new images. The image of the heart with eyes in it has never been used before, Paul. Now it's like, oh, the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart. It didn't exist. Paul tried to express and explain what happened to him. He said, I was blind. My, these eyes were, were able to see, but my inner being, my inner man, my spirit, my, my, the, the most uttermost part of my being that is created by God to be in contact with God was blind, and I was not in contact with God. But one day, everything changed in one moment. The eyes of my heart got opened, and I saw something, and now I pray for you. If you read Paul's epistles, you will see Pretty much every epistle that he does, he first greets them and he butchers their greeting. Traditional greeting is like greetings to you. 
uh, in Greek, it's, okay, I wish you have some joy. Rejoice. I don't remember how it sounds in Greek. He changed it and he said, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I mean it. It's not just like a figure of speech. I mean, I bring to you the news. I'm about to say words to you. If you open yourself, grace and peace from the throne of God will begin to flow right into your being right now. That's how you need to read Paul. Not academically, not just digging into Greek and that. Take him seriously. So Paul wrote 13 books out of 27 books of the New Testament. Did you know that? I hope some of you did. So I, I, I bothered to calculate and to see the percentage of the New Testament that was written by Paul, and it's about 48%. So Paul is considered to be one of the main figures of developing, developing Christian doctrine. What it is, the heart of the New Covenant is what we call Christian doctrine. And all of a sudden you go like, oh, Dennis, don't throw the wet blanket on me. You were just getting me excited about stuff. And now you're talking about Christian doctrine? Because Christian doctrine got a lot of bad reputation. Because as of today, it, it, it's thought of as something like boring, something detached from your life. What does it have to do with me living in Springfield, having my struggles, trying to deal with my teenage kids? It has everything to do with you, my friend. It, it, it was just because we have this weird tendency to take the most significant message of God and turn it into just some religious teaching. And the main reason is that we try to deal with information without having the eyes of our heart open. That's why we really, 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 really need to pray. And I'll give you a home assignment for, for today. I want you for the next several weeks to read through the book of Ephesians. And to read it slowly. Keyword, slowly. I want you to find a spot in your house or wherever you can be. And to calm yourself down. To stop thinking whatever you're thinking. And to try to step into this text. And just begin to read it slowly and begin to read it carefully. Let it sink in. Let it wash over your soul. Begin to, begin to, and here's what's going to happen most likely. That's what happened to me when I just became a Christian. The book of Ephesians became one of my favorite books. If you would ask me, Dennis, do you even understand what it says there? I said, probably no, but I really, really felt something every time I would get to this point when, when, I would feel like I got a little glimpse into the heart of God. And that's what's, what's going to happen to all of us. Well, anyway, let me move on. Oh, by the way, as you read the book of Ephesians, and it's so uplifted, so poetic, so amazing, just remember that Paul wrote it from prison. He was in jail for his faith as he was writing it. And there's not a shred of complaint there. In fact, there's a heartfelt prayer that is found there. And Paul, you feel like he's about to burst if he doesn't share. Okay. I will let Neil to start unpacking the book of Ephesians. 
But again, as I said, I, my desire is to show you the unique place of the Apostle Paul in revealing and articulating the heart of our faith, what we call Christian doctrine. I, would, I want to call it the heart of the new covenant. Paul claims that he has received mysteries, something that has been revealed to him that has never been revealed to previous generations of people. Do you know what it means? That all of the Bible that existed before Paul was lacking something, was lacking some key elements to unlock it, to unlock the uh, deep understanding. Okay, guys, I need to rush through my notes because I have too many notes. That's a problem. So I'm going to skip through some of them. So basically, I've already told you what books we're going to cover. So uh, now I want to shift gears quickly and to tell you that there is a common characteristic that was, that was present in Jesus' ministry and in Paul's ministry. And if you do things right, if we do things right in this church, it will probably be a characteristic of our church ministry. And here, what it was. It was a stark contrast between the gospel and the religion, religious traditions. Religion always tries to mingle and mix with the gospel. And if it does it successfully, it sucks all the power and joy and hope and fruit, fruitfulness from a life of a believer. Amen? How do you fight that? Just like we did in last series, you rediscover the pure message of the gospel. And when you begin to look and meditate and see and absorb and the eyes of your heart begin to be open, you begin to see the difference between religion and the gospel and how incompatible they are. And you begin to preach the gospel. And as you preach the gospel, two things begin to happen. People are being set free and religious spirits are being offended. So just remember Jesus. And you read through four Gospels. Jesus preached to the people of Israel who were under the law. And he preached the obedience and observance of all the things from the Bible. Yet he extended his arms to suffering people who didn't claim much knowledge of God. But he was very almost mean to one category of people. Who was it? Religious folks. Those folks claimed that they knew God. How? Through, through study of the Scripture. They studied the Scripture day and night. So religious people didn't like Jesus, and Jesus was not very fond of religious people either. He was never tactful with them. I noticed that. He was not diplomatic. He never walked on shells near them, never tried to find the common ground often confronted them and criticized them for hypocrisy, legalism, for lack of love, for putting heavy burdens on people. But that was not the main thing. Right now, I'm going to touch the nerve why in the world religious people were so angry with Jesus. This is the same nerve why when Paul became Paul, Apostle Paul, religious people were as mad with Paul. And my friend, I have a little bit of a bad news for you. That's why some people will really not like you if you really begin to believe the gospel. All right? So get ready, buckle in, let's go. So 
What's the heart of an issue here? You see, when, when Jesus talks to Pharisees and Sadducees, he never questions their expertise as their knowledge of the Word of God. They know their Bible real well, and he recognizes that. But he has been telling them that their knowledge of the Bible does not bring them any closer to God. And that sounded like heresy. Let it sink in. I'll say it again. He's been telling them that their knowledge of the Bible does not bring them any closer to God. They accumulated much cognitive knowledge about, about God, but they had no personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of God. They knew tons of things about God, yet they didn't know Him. That's a description of so many Christians today. Honestly, that's a description of us in many ways. I'm so glad that here at least we have some personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of God. And we're growing in it. And that's our old... I, that's the whole idea behind any sermon that we do, any gathering we do. We want to know Him better. We want to grow in this intimate knowledge of His, right? So, so in Jesus' attitude, if Jesus' attitude is an expression of what kind of God He believed, then everything Jesus, everything Jesus did negated the notion of God that Pharisees and Sadducees presented. So Jesus was basically telling these guys, you guys act all important because of your alleged knowledge of God, but you guys are fake news. Seriously. You guys are fake news. Your lifestyle, your beliefs, your attitude is a horrible representation of my father who you call your God. How did he know? What was the basis of such a bold statements? Jesus, have some respect. These guys are much older than you. They studied the Bible much longer than you. How dare you, young whimpersnapper? <laughs> and Jesus said, you know, you want to know how I know this? Well, because I know my father so well that I can, sm I can smell fake claims of knowledge of him miles away. And that's how it works, guys. I don't know what other way to explain it to you. Paul, why was he so bold when he confronted Peter? Peter was disciple of Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter did saw some of the crazy miracles that Jesus did. P Peter slept with Jesus, ate with Jesus, was in the boat with Jesus, was outside of the boat on the water with Jesus. How dare you, Paul, reprimand him in front of other people? You know why? Paul could do that because he was just like Jesus. He knew what he knew, what he knew, what he knew. And nobody could sway him from that. It was solid, experiential knowledge of God. He recognized the extent of this knowledge. He, he said, we know things kind of vaguely, but there are some things that I will die for and I will not bulge. He called those things the gospel. So, okay, good. We still have some time.
So basically I was saying that, that that's the nerve, that's the, that's the core issue that religious folks had with Jesus. His claims to this unique intimate knowledge of the Father. How intimate? Here's what Jesus was claiming. I put it in my own words. You, you can find a lot of this in the Gospel of John. He said he knows God as a beloved child knows his Father whose heart is delighted and pleased by being with his child. No expectations. No disappointments. Jesus said in the beginning of his ministry, here I am, I go to, to do your will. And he comes to the river of Jordan to be baptized. And this marks the beginning of his public ministry. So he's about to do something for God. He's about to fulfill the will of God. He hasn't done it yet, right? Here's what he hears. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the words of affirmation and pleasure. That was the thing. That was what marked Jesus' life. Well, anyway, I'm going to read a short scripture. There are many scriptures like that where Jesus claims clearly that he has this knowledge that nobody else has. And that's super irritating to people who felt like they paid the price for this claim to know God. And here comes Jesus and says, you're fake news. You don't know God. Let's read Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 through 30. And Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He's talking to Jewish people who are trying to please God. Come to me, or all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke and burden were two words that were used by rabbis at that time to depict observing God's law, observing God's principles, doing God's will. And he said, these guys are putting heavy burdens, but you're heavy laden because of that. Drop these burdens. Come to me. I'll give you a different burden. Learn from me. I'm lowly. I'm humble. I don't strive to be someone. I don't strive to please God. I live within, in the middle of the pleasure of God. God is pleased with me. Where I am, the rivers, the waterfalls of God's love are pouring down. And that's not because of me. That's because of who my Father is. Come to me. I'll share it with you. I will usher you into the same kind of relationship. This was the biggest treasure that Jesus had. This was the biggest irritating factor for religious folks. Jesus claimed there was absolutely no distance between him and the Father. There was no hindrance. There was no barrier. There was total. He said, I dwell in my Father. As I walk on this earth, I know one thing. I have come from the Father, but I haven't left my Father. I'm walking with him. He's walking with me. I am in him. He is in me, and I've come. 
to die on the cross so that I can bring you all into this realm. This is the gospel. And he said, and the disciples were, like Neil refers to them as knuckleheads. They heard it, but they couldn't hear it. They heard it, but they couldn't understand it. He said, don't worry, guys. Every little thing is going to be all right. <laughs> Why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to come. A comforter will come. Someone will come who will bring the reality of this relationship right into the middle of your heart. And you will begin to experience this reality. And that happened. It happened. It happened. You don't have to labor to please God. You have the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of adoption. You can call Abba Father, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy God, Daddy God. My daughter calls me every night. She said, Daddy, would you pray for me so that I can sleep well? And I come to her and we pray. And sometimes I say, Father. And sometimes I say, Daddy, thank you. So she knows she calls Daddy so that we together will call to Daddy. That's the gospel. I'm kind of ignoring my script now. But Jesus was irritating to those religious folks because in 14.6, for example, John 14.6, he says, I am the way. Do we have it? Or maybe, yeah, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is a good news for you guys. I mean, I don't know. There are many of you here. And most of you probably identify yourself as a Christian. But if you have never come to Jesus... Maybe you were raised in the church. But if you've never come to Jesus, do it today. We're going to have worship and there are going to be some people. Just come to them. Whatever, you know, just tell them, hey, I've never taken this practical stuff. Can you help me? Can you lead me in prayer to receive Jesus, just to invite him into my heart? I want this. I want to be able to call Father Daddy. I want to be able to refer to God as my loving Daddy. I want to be able to relax and not to strive to be, to be someone in God's eyes. But rather to accept myself as someone very, very beloved, very valuable in God's eyes. Would you pray for me, please? And people would pray with you. And it will happen. So the gospel is the end of striving. Trying to become somebody. Trying to please God. The gospel is the end of religion. That's why religious peoples are all worked out about it. And you know, what's... One way religious people know how to solve problems. Control, suppress, and kill. That's it. And that's exactly what they tried to do with Jesus. They thought, okay, we tried this, we tried that. We tried this, we tried that. It doesn't help. We're going to just become radical about it. So let's solve the problem radically. We'll kill him. And they did. It didn't help. It helped for three days, about three, four days. They thought, if we kill the guy, these knuckleheads around him will be so scared, they'll just run away, be scattered, and hide. And that's exactly what happened for three days. All faith was gone from the hearts of the disciples. They documented it for us. That's why they're called witnesses. They're not called believers. We are believers. They're called witnesses. You know why? Because they lost all their faith when Jesus died. And they documented it in the Bible. And then Jesus shows up. He said, didn't I tell you what is going to happen? Now, go, wait. The comfort I told you about is going to come. And then go witness about what you've seen. You've seen me dead and you've seen me reason. Real Jesus. Not a legend. 
Well, those religious folks are trying to stop it. They, they killed Jesus. It didn't work. Then even something worse. So they try to, and that thing begins to spread like a wildfire in, in California in the summer. They don't know what to do with this. And then another thing happened, weird thing happened. They had a big religious celebration. And Jesus loves to disrupt religious stuff for some reason. Why don't you, Jesus, why don't you just, just heal somebody on Thursday? Why do you do it on Saturday? I'm sure that was the feeling of some of the disciples. Jesus, be smart. We got to be inclusive. Jesus said, yeah, but not religion. Religion shall not pass. Well, anyway, so all these Jews, especially rich and influential Jews from all over Mediterranean region, gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate whatever they were celebrating. And they were there, and all of a sudden something crazy happened. Some kind of a weird psychosis or, I don't know, frenzy landed on thousands of people. And these disciples of Jesus began to go, Wah! they started speaking weird tongues. And then one of them stood up, the one who was afraid, the one who, who betrayed Jesus, the one who, not betrayed Jesus, who, who denied Jesus three times publicly, who was like afflicted by condemnation just a month, like I don't know how, how many days were before that. Then he stands up. He opens his mouth, he begins to speak, and, and how many thousand got saved? 3,000 people. It, just man, Neil says. Another top theologian of Northridge said. So, about 3,000 people had the eyes of their heart open. The Spirit of God comes into them. All of a sudden, they sense the reality of God that they've never sensed before. And they went back to their local places where it came from. And all of a sudden, these religious people who just tried to kill people, who just tried to su suppress the disciples, they have a bigger problem. They, they have this new heresy, this new teaching spreading all over the Mediterranean. And every single day, new and new and new and new people were, were, were becoming believers. Guys, this is a description of a normal Christian life. This is a description that I declare prophetically that we will experience here in Springfield. We will see people coming into the kingdom because we carry the, the, the Spirit of God. So, yeah. But, wait. There was a hope for these Jewish religious folks. There was a young religious star by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He was beautiful. He was strong. He was, I don't know, maybe he wasn't beautiful, but in his own eyes, he was. He was, he was great. I mean, later he writes, you know, the typical Christian testimony, I was so bad. My life sucked. I was a horrible person. I was a mess. And then Jesus saved me and put me together. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Paul wasn't like, if you read Paul's testimony, he said, I was great. I was doing great. I was the best Jew that you could ever find. I was the purest, the top-notch Teacher, whatever. And Jesus came and ruined it all. Paul's testimony was upside down for some reason. <laughs> now I'm in prison because of that guy, Jesus. But he wasn't complaining. He was joyful, you know. So he was a top student of the best rabbi. He was the top student of the Bible. 
of all religious traditions. He was a pure breed Jew. He's the cream of the crop of Jewish nation. He's brilliant. He's got connections with many important people. He has dual citizenship. He's got Roman citizenship. He's got the most powerful passport of that day. He had a right to appeal to Caesar directly. He's a big shark, fat cat. What's the English expression? Mover and shaker. And now, and he knows, he knows, he thinks he does. He knows God because he knows the Bible real well. And he knows that thing, that they, whatever they call it, the way, disciples, Jesus people, whatever, I'm going to get rid of it. That's going to be my personal assignment from God. I'm going to serve God well by eradicating all these groups of Christians. And he is a brilliant, having a brilliant mind, he develops a strategy. And his strategy is to get authority and to go to cities that have high populations of Jews and methodically and strategically to implement personal terrorism against Christian families. It wasn't like here in America. And he's on his way. And let's read about what happened. And I know you read about it, but let's read about it. Let's read like we've never read it before. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Oh, my goodness, I'm running out of my time. I told you. Oh, my. All right. Let's read it. But Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 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 hello, Saul, that's me, Saul, huh? Why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, you think you're like trying to oppress these people? You're touching me, dude, and I'm real. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. <laughs> yeah, I'm Jesus. One time Neil preached here, and by mistake, he referred to the previous week's message, my message. He said, last week, Jesus told us, blah, blah, blah. And he meant Dennis told us. But I said, you know what? There's truth to that. Jesus, through Dennis, told us something. Well, anyway. He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. I'm amazed the way they had a relationship with the Lord back then. That's our standard. That's how we want to live. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street. Get your GPS, put it there. Go to the street, call straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And behold, right now he's praying. 
And he's seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias came in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, listen, the Lord speaks of Saul. The Lord speaks of Paul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. That's how Paul's ministry began. And it was the beginning of his ministry, the most radical and dynamic religious detox that anybody has ever had. In one day, he lost everything. In one day, Paul moved from being an expert of religious studies into experiential knowledge of God. In one day, he, were, he moved, in a, in a split second, he moved from somebody who could answer any question about the Bible to someone who, who said like, Lord, who are you? I have no clue. In one day, he moved from somebody who was trying to eradicate this new movement called Christians to being someone who recognized that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. <laughs> And that's how his ministry began. I don't have time to continue. I have more notes, but Neil will continue. But I want to show you two pictures. Have you ever heard of artificial intelligence? So there are new platforms with artificial intelligence. And I, I played with that just for fun of it. There is a version of it that analyzes and teaches itself from millions of pictures online or from millions of artists. And when I learned that Paul was the first one who came up with this image, the heart that has eyes and that can be opened, I, I went to artificial intelligence and said, hey, draw me a picture based on what you know about digital art of a heart that has eyes and they're open. And that's the picture I got. Can we have an angle for video so that they would see it? It's kind of spooky a little bit, but it's kind of weird and cool. But then as I began to continue to study and I realized that Paul always prayed for people to see something that has happened. Paul doesn't want you to pray so much for things to happen. First of all and above all, he wants us to see what has already happened in Jesus. And that's what he called the revelation of the mystery of God's heart and also called my gospel. And when we begin to see it, it fills us with joy. So I went to the artificial intelligence and said, hey, do the same thing. but." Do it like the eyes got open and saw something real, real, real good. And that's what I got. I know it's silly. It's kind of cartoonish. But listen, this is how you should look from within. 
This is how Paul looked in jail when he was writing this letter. Remember this thing. This is how you are to feel and be inside because of what you have seen in Jesus. That's my introduction to this series, The Heart of the New Covenant. Thanks for listening to this message. We hope you received a fresh revelation of the gospel of grace and that you experience the goodness of God in your everyday life. For more content like this or to stream our services live, visit thebridgespringfield.com. Have an awesome week.